You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Let me just, we'll pray together, but let's, let's just continue on with what Ethan said there just for a moment, that right now, somewhere in this universe, there is a throne and God is upon it, and the Bible tells us they are, there are angels who are around his throne, whose job it is to sing holy, holy, holy all the time. And they are the most fulfilled beings in the universe because they are doing exactly what they were created to do, and they love it, and it brings such joy to them. And we are here this morning, and we get to, we get to join together and have a brief little picture of that, because we were created to worship. That's what we were, we were created to worship God, and we worship other things. That's the problem. And so this morning, let's just, let's bow our heads. Let's just center our minds upon that throne and ask God by His grace uh, to set us to do that which we were created to do this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is an amazing thought that you who are surrounded by such glory have made a way for us not just to be in your presence, but to be in your presence intimately and to call you Father. We thank you for the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has made that possible. We thank you for his sacrifice upon the cross. We thank you that he has risen again. We thank you that he is seated next to your right hand. And Lord, as we turn to look at this passage this morning, would you help us to trust and to believe and to think about his return in glory and to be encouraged and to be amazed and to reset our lives as a result of what your word says about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we set these things to you, trusting you this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So it is so good to be here with you this morning. Uh, as some of you know, we were in China in early June. We were there to adopt our fifth child, Walter. Uh, thank you for everybody who prayed for us. Thank you for those who brought meals to us. It was such a huge encouragement. And let me just testify to the truth that Jesus' promise is real and that he will never leave you or forsake you. And I can tell you many stories, and uh, there are many things as, as we adjust to our new life and as Walter adjusts to his new life um, that I could talk to you about, but, but let me just tell you, Jesus takes care of you, and especially when you do things to follow him. So let me just be an encouragement to you in that. Uh, listen, we, about a year ago, decided to submit that form. We were very open to ages and special needs, and they call us up and they say, we've got a child and he has hemophilia. And I'm like, I don't know how open I am to that. And then we call over here. It turns out there's a, there's a regional like hematological clinic, like practically in sight of this building. And we call them up and they're like, no, you got this. You can totally do this and we'll do it with you. And so a year later, we've got a little scared two-year-old come in to be with us in a gray government building in China. So just to let you know, Erica and I are always happy to talk about adoption. If you have thought of that, but you think that seems crazy, let me tell you, we had some people with us. 
We had people who were adopting their seventh child. We had people with us who were older who were adopting their fourth child. There was a single lady who was adopting a little three-year-old. There was a man there with his 11-year-old boy from the U.S. who was adopting another 11-year-old boy from China who had terminal heart disease, and they were just adopting him to bring him home and to be with him until he passes. So Jesus will not leave you. He will not forsake you. It's not easy to adopt and to do other things to serve Jesus, but he didn't call us to a life of ease. And he called us to take up our cross, deny him, deny ourselves, not deny him. That's the point of the passage. Uh, and follow him. So, uh, just, just an encouragement to you. Thank you so much for praying for us. Listen, while we were in China, uh, one of the things I've always wanted to see, one of the things I've always wanted to do, we didn't get to do it last time we were there, uh, is to see the Great Wall. I, was, I, I keep calling it the Beijing Wall, but it's the Berlin Wall and the Great, the great Wall of China. We got to see the Forbidden City and Tiananmen Square and the Forbidden City, which is just big. Like, you got, like we, we had gotten like three, I don't know if you've been there before, but we had gotten like three or four like massive, beautiful buildings, you know, and I'm like thinking, okay, we're on our way out. And the guy's like, okay, just to let you know, we're still not into the Forbidden City. And it just went, oh, there must have been like 16 or 20 gorgeous buildings in there. How many of you this summer? Did anybody go to Washington, D.C. this summer, see the Capitol or the White House? Anyone? little vacation? Got a few, right? Big Ben, Parliament, Westminster, the Kremlin. Did anybody go there? That, that'd be impressive. Um, these are all places that are symbols of world government, right? They're, they're iconic. When, when you think about the Great Wall of China, or the Capitol building in the, in the United States, or, or, or Big Ben and, and Parliament. You, you think of those things, and they represent world government. And if you remember the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw way back in, in, in Daniel chapter 2, that chapter, it was gold on the top, and it had arms of silver, and it had a, a torso of bronze, and then down at the bottom, it had these iron feet. And it was beautiful, and it was strong. And it was impressive. I would, I would say there's a possibility it was so impressive that Nebuchadnezzar decided to build his, his own statue and make Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bow down to it in chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar's like, that is awesome. But here's the thing. That is human government as we see it. When you think of those iconic structures, that is... That is humanity's picture of, Mormon, uh, of human government. It's beautiful, it's impressive, it's alluring in its power. I don't care who's president, if I get invited to the White House, I'm going, because I just want to see it. I mean, it's, it's incredible to me. If the queen invites me to Buckingham Palace, I'm going, because that's just cool, right? I think. I used to go hang out and watch, I would go to, I would go to Washington, D.C. with my dad in the summer when he would work there, and I would sometimes just, as an as 11th grader, I would take the subway in and just watch Congress. Okay, so it's like C-SPAN was, was kind of okay for me. So I'm, I'm a little bit of a nerd in these respects, but I really, really like government and politics. All right, but today, we're going to look at a different vision of these world kingdoms. So, so that's the world government from, God, from man's perspective. We're going to see it from God's perspective. And here's the thing. They're monstrous. They're grotesque. 
And especially in the case of the fourth kingdom, it's terrifying. And so this vision of world government that we're going to see this morning in Daniel chapter 7, not only does it not draw us, it should repulse us. This is the vision that shows us what God thinks. When when sinful humanity gets together and builds a God-denying, God-hating society, this is what God thinks of it. And we're all impressed by the glory of the nations of the world. God is not impressed. And remember, the end of of, of the vision in chapter 2, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, that statue was pulverized by the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. So it's not even as strong as it seems like it is. So we're in a new section this morning. If you've been reading ahead in the book of Daniel, we've reached chapter 7. You can go ahead and open there. Uh, So if you've been reading ahead, you've probably been like, oh, yeah, man, these are great. I remember these stories. Or maybe you don't remember the stories, and you're like, these are good stories, right? You got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Fiery Furnace. You got um, the handwriting on the wall. You got Nebuchadnezzar becoming a cow. And and then you got the the lion's den. Great stories. And then you hit chapter 7. And you're like, what is this? All right? And, and the reason is that this is, this is a different section. It's a section uh, that is devoted to prophecy. All of it is future to Daniel. Uh, for us, some of it has taken place and some of it is still yet to come. Much of what we're going to see in these six chapters, just to let you know, lays the foundation for Revelation. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you should understand what's going on here in these last six chapters of Daniel. And let me say this. Maybe you're here this morning and you're checking out Christianity for the first time. Maybe you've been like kind of getting to know us and you're like, okay, Christians aren't as weird as I thought they were. And now I'm telling you, yeah, we have a book that tells us the future. It's true. All right. So hear me out. All right. Hear me out. We, we believe that we have a God uh, who knows all things and who is in charge of all things, who is sovereign over all things. And so he knows the, the end as well as he knows the beginning. Okay. So we're just going to trust in that today. So over the next three weeks, there are four visions in this section. We have one here in, in chapter 7, there's one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, and then there's one long vision in chapters 10 through 12. So we're going to be looking at those over the next three weeks. We do not pretend to understand exactly what all of this means, but a lot of it, the Bible tells us exactly what it means. Okay, so we're going to, we're going to look at those things, and we will find them gloriously interesting, comforting, and convicting, all right? And here's one more thing. I'm going to tell you the end. Jesus wins. It's a glorious, glorious endings. this, This kingdom of the world, these kingdoms of the world, they will be destroyed. But until then, those world powers are going to fight hard against the true God and his people. At times, it will be horrific but we can know that God is absolutely in control. All right, so uh, if you're there, hopefully you are. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, if you've got your Bibles. If not, there's going to be some big chunks of Scripture, and then a couple of places I'm just going to read some things for you, okay? So uh, let's, let's dig into the passage. Chapter uh, 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed, and then he wrote down the dream and the sum of the matter. Okay, so we're going backwards a little bit in the book. Last week, we were in chapter 6. We had Daniel in the lion's den. That's 
under the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Darius is, is the leader at the time. This is going back to before chapter 5 when Belshazzar is king in Babylon and Daniel is there, perhaps in some kind of semi-retirement at that time. All right? So, but Babylon is still the dominant kingdom in the world when, when Daniel receives this dream, but not for very much longer. Okay, let's read verses 3 through 7 together. This is the vision that Daniel has. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four beasts came out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, and its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And this beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great teeth. It devoured, I'm sorry, it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Okay, so these are the same four kingdoms that we looked at in chapter two. Okay, so the, the, top, uh, the top of the statue was Babylon, and so this lion with wings represents Babylon. And then we see that there is a, uh, let's see, a bear raised up on one side. Probably, probably means kind of hunched up, rather. I mean, you kind of pic- picture it on its side, but I think it probably means hunched up. It's got three ribs in its mouth, um, and it was told to rise devour much flesh. And then there's this third creature that seems like a leopard. It's very fast. It has four heads, and, and that represents Greece. Okay, the bear is, is Medo-Persia, and the, the leopard is Greece. And we'll talk about the, the bear and, and the, the leopard some more next week. Um, the leopard, which, which is very fast, represents Alexander the Great, who kind of charges through the known world at the time, goes all the way to India, and very swiftly conquers. Okay, so hang on to those for next week. But the, 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 be, the beast that Daniel is obsessed with, is, is focused on, is thinking about in this vision is this fourth monstrous beast. And it doesn't look like anything familiar. So, you know, he's, ah, this is kind of a bear, this is kind of a leopard. This one doesn't look normal at all. It's terrifying, exceedingly strong, great iron teeth ready to devour. Whatever it doesn't devour, it stamps out, and then it has these ten horns in its head, okay? All right, so this fourth kingdom, uh, it is Rome. It's a, it's a kingdom that is still to come. You know, the other two kingdoms would have existed in that day. Medo-Persia and, and Greece would have been there, you know, would kind of like me standing up here today and saying, I had a vision in the night, and I have seen that, you know, Canada and Costa Rica are going to rise up, and each one of them will dominate the world. Okay, so they were sort of there, but everybody would have been like, really? That's going to happen? You know, okay. Rome, on the other hand, doesn't seem like a, 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 a kingdom that exists at all, okay? And so that's, that's not even on the horizon at this time. And also, this is true historically, because he says that, 
you know, this fourth kingdom, this fourth beast is going to be so much stronger and, and more um, just brutal than those first three. And, and that's true historically, historically as well. The Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece, um, they were not as ruthless as Rome. Rome comes in. They're, they're more of a confederacy. Rome comes in, and Rome rules with an iron fist. And as I understand this passage, we are still in that fourth kingdom. And there's a lot of reasons to think that, but let me just say for right now, the reason I think we are still somehow a part of that fourth kingdom is because at the end of that kingdom, Jesus is going to return. Jesus is the one who is going to ultimately slay this final beast, all right? So, so all I know is that somehow we are still a part of that beast that is the fourth kingdom. So Daniel can't stop looking at this beast with these ten horns, okay? And, and down in verse 24, I'll read it in a few minutes, uh, the, the, the angel who is interpreting this vision for him says, as for those ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. So these, these ten horns represent ten kings. And then out of those ten kings, he sees this little horn start to come up. And it's another king who is to come. And this little horn starts to uproot three of the ten horns and becomes sort of this, this dominant horn. And he says it has eyes like a man and it has mouth speaking great things, okay? This little horn, is, this is the first time in the Scripture that we see a very important person who is going to, to play a very important role in this sort of end times drama that is going to unfold, and that is the Antichrist, all right? Brothers and sisters, this man is not a fictional character. He is not a character from a horror movie. He is not going to have glowing eyes and like horns that they have to hide with a hat or anything like that, okay? He's going to be a real guy. I actually think he's probably not going to look scary. He's probably going to look very appealing. He's going to be very charismatic, all right? Second Thessalonians, Paul calls him the man of sin. So this real person, pictured here by this little horn, is going to embody the worst of sinful humanity. Everything that sinful humanity finds noble and worthwhile and important, he is going to promote, and he is going to hate and put down everything that God loves. And he's going to be consumed with destroying God's people and thwarting God's plans. You talk, people talk a lot today about the erosion of a religious liberty in our nation. You ain't seen nothing yet. It's, it's going to get a lot worse than this. All right, so if we're watching a movie, the scene switches at this point. So Daniel has been focused on this, this terrifyingly uh, grotesque beast with these ten horns and this little horn, and now, now the scene switches up to heaven, all right? So as the wickedness of, of humanity is reaching its apex in history, Jesus sort of begins to come on to the scene here in his Old Testament. When Jesus, when Jesus speaks of his, his second coming, he says, you know, no man knows, and, and, and even the angels don't know when that's, that's going to take place. And so I kind of picture up in heaven, you know, you've got God on his throne, and you've got the angels all around, and, and they're like, you know, seeing the wickedness that is on this earth and the, 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 the nations 
And you can almost picture those angels being like, now? Is it, is it now? Is it time? God, is it now? Is it now? And he's, no, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. And then finally, they're going to look at him one day. Maybe it'll be soon. Maybe it's, it's still years and years in the future. But they're going to look at him and they're going to say, is now the time? And finally, he's going to look back and he's going to say, it's time. Look at verses 9 through 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure white, pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I don't know how you picture the end times. And, you know, I, 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 I actually think the Bible indicates that, that it's going to be a pretty prosperous time, okay? I, I think there's going to be a, a lot of prospering. I think the problem is actually going to be that this, this world government that's going to be, you know, manifested in, specifically in the person of this Antichrist is going to say, if you want to prosper, then you bow down to our system that hates God. I think that's what's going on here, okay? And so, up in heaven then, the Ancient of Days, God is, is setting up His thrones and preparing for judgment. All right, I have to tell you, I just lo- I love this part of the story. So, in the, I don't know if any of you guys ever read the King James, okay? But where it says here the thrones were placed, in the King James Version of the Bible, it says the thrones were cast down which is kind of a bad translation, but it's okay. But I, you know, every, I picture that as like Jesus just coming in and like just grabbing these thrones and ripping them up and being like, take that, you know? And so just all over the place, he's just picking up thrones and he's throwing them down. What it actually means is the thrones were placed and if think about like a, a ruler in the Middle East. A ruler in the Middle East, he sits on pillows. We're so like... Western Europe with our, like, hardback chairs, you know, and thrones. Jesus is setting up a throne. It's a, it's a comfortable throne. It's a, I mean, if you're going to rule forever, do you want to sit on a wooden hardback chair, or do you want to spread out on pillows, all right? So Jesus' throne, the, 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 rather, the throne of God here is being set up. Uh, there are these fiery flames. There are these wheels of fire that are that are coming. It's, it's all of this is the picture of God's judgment that is flowing out, and it's about to be poured out on this world system and specifically on the Antichrist. And brothers and sisters, this is a frightening thought because this is the time when God's patience runs out on humanity. In, in Romans 11, Paul says, behold the kindness and severity of God. And we are thankful for God's kindness and His mercy and His patience and His love. And that, praise God, that is all true of Him. But there is also His holiness. And there is His justice. And that is the severity of God. Because because He is holy and just, He must punish sin. And He must punish all who have rebelled against him. And and brothers and sisters, let me say this too. The cross of Jesus Christ is the refuge for that judgment. Because when you are covered with the blood of Christ, 
then that judgment will pass over you. But today is the day. The whole book of Daniel is evidence that God does indeed keep his word. And, and, and the prophets have been warning Daniel, uh, the, the, the Israel for years, if you don't turn, you're going to go into exile. And that is exactly what happened. And so eventually God's patience runs out. And so it will be with us. If anybody in this room persists in unbelief, eventually judgment will come. All right, so the scene actually shifts again back to earth. And this is so interesting to me because that is a glorious sight, y'all. If we were sitting here today and we got a view into heaven of the throne of God being set up, I would think that nothing would take our gaze. And yet, Daniel is consistently distracted by this little horn. Verse 11 says, I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And so the pride and the arrogance of the Antichrist is so pervasive that in spite of the glories of heaven, Daniel is forced to say, what is going on down here? What is happening? And then it's as if the Ancient of Days says, enough. And that stone that came and blasted that statue to smithereens, just blasted it, pulverized it. Here is that picture. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. That kingdom that has stood against God and his purposes and his people will be utterly destroyed by fire. And this is the day of reckoning that comes for all nations and it comes for all men and God is the final judge. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 24. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. They will appear in heaven, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Y'all, we talk a lot about Jesus' first coming in humiliation, and we should. He came in a manger. He, he came to an unwed mother. He was a peasant. He, was, he went to a cross, and he died so that many might live. And he came out of that tomb, and he, he ascended back to the Father. But here we see this coming, the second coming of Jesus describing himself as the Son of Man, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Revelation, he is, he is pictured as having a sword coming out of his mouth. And that sword is simply his word. Y'all, this battle is going to be a short battle as the Antichrist and his armies have rallied against the, the true God. And as the Son of Man comes, it, it's going to be something like drop dead. And the whole battle will be over right then. There's no battle 
to be fought. You know, I know there's, there's some bad examples out there about study and prophecy, but nothing should deter us from looking into this future, this, this future that God has given us, because it is so comforting to know. But Daniel is confused. Look at uh, verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the vision of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, and so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the thing. So if you're here this morning and you've never heard this before and it sounds weird to you, understand it sounded weird to Daniel also. And so he goes over to one of the angels nearby and he says, what does this mean? So what I'm going to do now, I'm just going to read for you. And I, don't, I didn't even put it up here. So just listen. This is the angel's interpretation of the vision that we just walked through. And I've, I've kind of already kind of filled you in on some of these things. But just listen to this angel explaining this vision. If you have your Bible in front of you, it's verse 17. The four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze in which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth uh, and that great, spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. And I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, which shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise." And another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings, and he shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and shall be given, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end." And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Y'all, that is a glorious passage. Now, let me tell you what is in that passage so that you can be clear. It is important for you to see that there is a fifth kingdom that is spoken of in that passage. That fifth kingdom will be ruled by the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Those other four kingdoms are historical kingdoms. They had kings, they had people, they had lands. I believe this passage teaches that there will be a real historical kingdom on this earth from which Jesus Christ will reign and all the nations of this earth will serve him. And the Scriptures have a lot to say 
about this kingdom, especially the Old Testament prophets. In that day, during that kingdom, the curse of sin will be removed from the earth. Listen to Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow, and the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw with the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my, all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Y'all, that is the coming kingdom of our Lord. That is the kingdom that we anticipate. That is the kingdom, that is where we are seeking to store up our treasures. That is where we will reign with Him. The Bible says we will judge angels. Y'all, that, when, when Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, that is the kingdom upon which our lives should be set. Curious. Daniel is troubled by this vision. It is not triumphant. In verse 15, it says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was very anxious. The visions of my head alarmed me. And then the, the last verse of the chapter, verse 28, it says, Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. There's a glorious victory promised here, but this future of human government becomes increasingly wicked as we wait for the Messiah to come. And think about this from the perspective of those Jewish exiles. Like, they're, they're thinking the Messiah is going to come soon and he's going to take them back to the land. And what they're finding out here is, yeah, they're going to go back to the land, but there are these four successive world kingdoms that are going to come before their Messiah comes and reigns in his kingdom. And each successive kingdom is going to get more wicked until the day when he comes. So what can we learn from this sort of melancholy vision? Exciting in that, that Jesus is going to return, but sobering in what's going to happen between now and then. Well, first of all, don't be afraid of studying prophecy. Um, God expects us to be able to recognize the times, okay? Now, He does not want us reading the paper and saying, okay, so, you know, Russia invaded Iran, and if you look in Ezekiel, you can find that we're right on the right timetable because that's what's going to happen. That's not what we're talking about here. But I always find it interesting that Jesus, one of His condemnations of the Pharisees was, look, guys, you should have known that I was at least close. You should have known. You should be able to look and see the times and be able to recognize what's happening here. And so it is for us. I don't think that God intends us to be surprised as these things start to happen around us. I'm not saying that you need to study and find some kind of prophetic scheme. But it is not wrong to study the things that God has given us so that our hearts can be affected and so that we can live holy lives. Be ready. Jesus is coming. 
And that's the New New Testament perspective, and it's very important. But in this vision, we also learn that the world really isn't going to get any better until Christ returns. This is an evil world system, and one day it's going to organize itself into a government whose purpose it is to oppose God and to oppose His people in every way. And there is an element of comfort here to know that God is in control, but probably more than that, it should give us as believers a sense of perspective. I have low expectations about the possibilities of humanity, both individually and collectively in their sinful state. We're never going to just get together and live peacefully until Jesus comes back. But we do know that He is going to return and that He is the one who is going to set things right. Which leads to my second point this morning, and that is this. God is not impressed with human government, and neither should we be. This, this is clear from the vision. That, that fourth kingdom is grotesque from God's perspective. And powerful people are impressive, and institutions that are built by powerful people can be beautiful and impressive. And, and by, uh, while most of us in this room, we won't be powerful people, it feels good to be close to power. We like to know people who can get things done. It's impressive. Y'all, it's the same. And, and I think it's all together. When we talk about celebrity and wealth and status, if we can't have it for ourselves, we like to be associated with it. We like it to sort of rub off on us. I lived in L.A. for eight years, right in the shadow of Hollywood, and everybody knows somebody who's famous And if they can't be famous, they want to just be close to somebody so that they can sort of bask in the glory of that. And it's in the church, too. We've got famous preachers with entourages. And if you can't be one, you want to be associated with one. And so world governments and media elite and religious elite, all they're all one thing. And it's beautiful to us. It's beautiful to us as fallen humanity. But it is grotesque to God. And it's a stench in His nostrils. And it is a ravenous beast with jaws of iron that is chewing up and spitting out and stomping on whatever it can find. Christians, we need to see the power of the world for what it is. It is a tool of the enemy to control and destroy. That alluring, dominating power that the world loves will never result in a kingdom that pleases God. And we need to pray that God would, by His mercy, remove that cloud from our eyes so that we can see this clearly. How do we defeat this world system until Jesus returns? We die. That's what Jesus did. He died. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, for whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. And so while we wait for Jesus' return, we literally give up our lives. We we metaphorically give up our lives, and some we don't literally. We metaphorically give up our lives, and some of us will be called to actually give up our lives. Everything I wanted before Christ, I have given over to Him. I am not my own. The old is gone. The new 
has come. CBC will have no effect on Savannah or anywhere else in the world if we try to fight with money and status and worldly wisdom. And if you think money is going to win this battle, picture yourself throwing coins at that beast because that's about the same effect that it's going to have. We will defeat that kingdom with the tools that God has given us when we renounce all that the world provides and supernaturally live in love for Christ and love for others. So don't be taken in by the system of this world. It's ugly in God's eyes, and it should be ugly in yours. And here's just a little heart check. Does Jesus' return seem appealing to you? Because if it doesn't, if you're sitting there thinking, you know, I've just got a little bit more I'd like to accomplish. I've, I've got a little bit more I want to do. You know, I think I, can, I think I can manage things. If you're sitting there thinking that, then maybe your heart is too attached to the wrong kingdom. Finally, this was a little shocking. I, it was a little shocking to me. Um, God doesn't need you to change the world. It's clear in this passage, y'all. It is absolutely clear. If you take Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 together at face value, you come to one simple conclusion. One day, Jesus Christ is going to return and destroy the kingdom of sinful humanity, which means you can't change the world, no matter what your graduation speaker said. <laughs> what the world needs is a righteous king. Think about it with me, y'all. We say... Let's go into the Middle East and dis depose a dictator and let's set up democracy because what the world needs is democracy. You know what the problem is with democracy? Every single one of us is a sinner. And sooner or later, we elect sinners. <laughs> How many times has some dictator been deposed only for those people to get together and put some other guy up there who was worse than the last guy? We say, let's elect people who are going to limit wickedness in our society. The problem is, millions of other people are saying, let's elect people who are going to help us do wickedness in our society. That's the way it works, right? The problem with a government by the people and for the people is the people. <laughs> Political science lesson today. We say, let's all get in a room and we'll all get together and love each other and we'll make some cool bumper stickers that say, coexist. And it doesn't work because in order to coexist with one another, we have to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And the truth is we all love ourselves more than we love our neighbor. Y'all, you can raise money to end world hunger, and sooner or later some executive is going to realize that he can just take a higher and higher salary for himself. And you can adopt children from countries that are godless, and sooner or later, some government official is going to realize that he can take bribes and he can get rich from that process. My optimism about humanity is low, but my optimism about Jesus Christ is high. And that's why the saints throughout history have been praying regularly, come quickly Lord Jesus. You can't change the world, but He can. And you know what else? He can change you. And that's huge. It's actually easier to talk about changing the world than it is to talk about our lives, because let's just be honest. 
It's easier to go dig a well in Africa than it is to stop looking at porn. It's easier to preach that everybody should coexist and to put a bumper sticker on the back of your car than it is to actually get along with your wife and your children. What we have is a lot of people who think they can change the world, but they don't think they can change the sinful habits in their lives. And the Bible actually says the exact opposite. You can live a godly life in Christ Jesus, but you can't change the world. And don't hear me saying that I am suggesting that we should just all sit around and and arrange deck chairs while the world burns. I am not suggesting that. I can't solve the orphan problem, but I can adopt one. I can't end world hunger, but I can feed the people around me. I can't end racism, but I can love my neighbor. So I am not saying don't do anything. What I am saying is that we can live for Christ as we await His glorious return. I like the term faithful presence because I think that is Daniel. Just to bring it full circle here, that's Daniel. He is living his life for God in the midst of a hostile people. And we see these five little snippets of his life, and they're great snippets. But the rest of the time, he's just living his life. He's a teenager in exile. The whole life, he's hoping, wishing that he could go back to his homeland. But in the midst of it, he's just devoted to God. Last week, I don't know if y'all noticed, but... You know, the, the men who are trying to get rid of him, who are trying to get him into the lion's den, they say, we can't. He's, he lives an upright life. We can't find anything wrong with the guy. He prays three times a day. That was the testimony of Daniel. So let's make it our goal that the same can be said of us. As we await the real and true coming of Jesus Christ, Let's be found to live godly lives. Let's not despair at the wickedness around us. And let's trust the one who created us and the one who has told us how we should live, that his purposes will be fulfilled. And then let's be a people who pray constantly, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we anxiously await that day when you will say, enough. And you will send your son to come in the sky like lightning. And everyone will see it, and every eye will see, and every knee will bow, and we will all proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in the meantime, by your Spirit, help us to live godly lives and to be encouraged and to have the right perspective. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. It is such an honor and a joy to await your coming with them. Lord, help us as we worship together now to see things as they really are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.